Hello and welcome to episode 330 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 1st of July 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me tonight is Graham Smith. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. I was trying to figure out when the last time the three of us did a podcast together. Yeah, it feels like a yeah a long time I ago. And also, might this has been a couple um, of rests ago. Oh wow! Uh, this is this. Uh, <laughs> what do I say? Loadout. What do I mean? Uh, this lineup <laughs> uh, is a hundred percent different to last week's, which is a thing that that happens now. Sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's been it's been it's been weird um, for me taking more podcast breaks. Like I'm doing like two a month at the moment, which is far less. And I've, what I've realized is I have exactly the same amount of opinions <laughs> per month that I had previously. Um, and uh, they apparently I was just stretching them a lot thinner. So, you know, if anything, it's it's good for me and the causes of me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice to at least eke this kind of slightly larger pod roster out of this otherwise extremely strange time in which to be alive. I feel yeah. like if there's two completely separate lineups possible now, then one of us has to be the A team and one of us has to be the B team. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we right now should decide which is which. <laughs> I think, I, well, so Marsh is going to edit this. I'm very aware of that. Um, and so while we may think we can make a decision right now, I, I think actually we can't. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to say that we have an A team and a team one. Yeah. That's and fantastic. like... Resolution. And like Team Eagle or something. Like those are the three teams. Um, <laughs> One A and Eagle, the three best things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking like if I was a Delta Forceman or something like that, what would I call a team? Um, and those are the, the the three things I can I can I can think of. If we call ourselves Team A, the other team are just going to call themselves Team S. That's better, that's better in Actually, is it the Japanese grading system or? Mm, yeah, I don't think it's. I think it's just video games. Maybe school as well. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there's also S plus, and there's New Game Plus. There's a lot of different ways you could spin this. New Game Plus, <laughs> exactly. Team um, mode. Yeah, Team Ending D. Um, <laughs> should we talk about some video games news that has occurred uh, in the world? Um, yes. The first bit of news. Uh, is uh, regards Amazon's Crucible, which uh, Marsh and I played and talked about. Uh, I was going to say like a few months ago, but honestly, I don't know. Like, could be weeks, could be years. Uh, sometime earlier this year, Amazon released Crucible uh, into early access, which is their uh, sort of team-based hero shooter, free-to-play MOBA shooter, third-person thing. Um, and uh, in the last 24 hours, it was announced that it's... Uh, going away again it's going back into closed beta um and i would just like to say that this is exactly what i predicted would happen <laughs> on the podcast so look at me i'm michael pachter now <laughs> oh no <laughs> i don't think being right about things is the defining trait of michael pachter <laughs> <laughs> shit but i've already said that, that i am so i'm wrong which makes ah. me the Michael Pachter now. <laughs> the Pachter paradox. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One Pachter can only tell the truth, and the other Pachter is only wrong. <laughs> which I know which one we got in our universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, and, and I would also say that I think when I said this, and obviously because I would have made this happen in a cosmic way, 
Um, I did say I think this was the only good thing that they could do with the game because it was a big mess. I don't know if either of you played it. I didn't, no. Long story short, it was a big mess. Um, a, a, a product to think of uh, a design with no clear vision, uh, following trends without really having a single experience to offer people and um, or a singular sort of thing you could describe that you did in the game that would make other people want to play it, which is quite important. And um, And I think... Give, but given the resources at its back and the sort of symbolic importance of Amazon's first game, quote unquote, um, I didn't. It didn't feel likely that it was just simply going to die. Like it feels like when this happens, and I think there's precedent with this with Artifact, um, the companies involved, Amazon involved in this case, have enough money to put the thing back in the oven, and it just feels like a weird new twist on the whole early access paradigm. That in addition to putting out a game that's in development and saying it's not out, which is a weird bit of double think uh you're also allowed to put the game away again and unrelease it uh, in order to release it again later um and that's what they're apparently going to do they've they've you know made a public trello board that says what they're working on and when they can expect things to happen and they're going to i think everyone who's like spent money on the game is in the closed beta so nothing has really changed for them it's just that the developers have closed the door around them um which feels a bit like hiring your own players to be your testers but so we go i don't know if there's any additional hot takes on this really has there ever been a game which has done this successfully like i know there's been live service games that have come out to broadly negative responses and then turned it around through hard graft at that point but has there been a game which has just unreleased itself and then had a second launch party where it's gone better I think you could make the case for that being true of Fortnite, which they released a version of that game that they thought people would like, and not many people did. And so they then went, well, actually, what if it was this instead? And that was now the biggest game in the world, right? Like, the whole yeah like thing about building forts at night, for which the game is named, <laughs> um, <laughs> is not really, like, the whole point of that game. The point of the game now is uh, great... Uh, pan like cross media uh, licensing opportunities um, plus gunfights for teens um, and they've done that extremely well but I, I guess that doesn't kind of qualify as a relaunch like really I'm trying to think if anything's legit to gone away and come back I can sort of um, I don't have an example of someone doing this but it does kind of make sense to me in that if you have a bad start incrementally improving it over time it is possible to turn around opinions but doing it bit by bit by bit you're not going to get a big splashy news story about it and Mm. if you want the narrative to be the big comeback you want the narrative to be like oh i know crucible had a shaky start but look now it's it's all new uh you kind of want that to be one big monolithic event and so the relaunch can be that in this case you do, although I think for that to work, people need to be, uh, just from a like a PR perspective, people kind of need to be rooting for you. And I think this is kind of the <laughs> challenge that Amazon have with this or that Valve have with Artifact, which is like, it, with, an, with an indie developer, for example, like, um, you know, if a game comes out and it's a little bit rough and it kind of climbs its way to being great, often the story there is like, hey, we're happy for these people. They managed to realize something that they were aspiring to do and didn't maybe pull off the first time. If like if those plucky kids at Valve managed to finally do the big Magic the Gathering they were hoping to do all along, then that's not like kind of 
it's not a, a it doesn't feel like a win in quite the same way and likewise if amazon managed to make the game good that's not a you know they, they, they thank god they finally you know jeff bezos has finally realized his creative vision here you know i feel good <laughs> for him like that's not really like the the emotional dynamic at all it feels quite it feels a lot more like um well, it feels a lot more like an admission of uh failure really um, yeah else. i feel bad for the, the folks working on it because it is kind of the worst or the, it's the most uphill struggle to get goodwill probably in that yeah you are you're both the underdog uh in terms of you don't have a track record and you don't have um uh, you know, established practices and all that stuff, and you're struggling, all the disadvantages of being an underdog, but you also don't have any sympathy because you're the biggest, wealthiest company in the world <laughs> and right. no one is rooting for you. And so everyone is kind of waiting for this to fail. Well, and that was the issue with the game, I think, is it really exposed that, like, um, if, well, I mean, you know, I think we said this at the time, but, like, it was really beautifully animated, like, it had really good character design, and that felt like something where it was, like, a distinct discipline where you could just hire really good people give them a good salary say point a bunch of really good game character designers and artists at, at it and say make these nice and they did but stuff like design particularly designed for like a multiplayer community it doesn't feel like it can be kind of broken out and succeeded on its own terms just like like just you know off the bat and they really stumbled on that and you probably can't buy a good design really um unless you just hire a mod team to do it but like I said, I think on the last part, I do really feel for people who made it because it can't have been easy at all. And yeah. there's so much pressure that comes with the fact that there's all the money in the world. So literally, so, um, you know, there is no excuse at all for, for failing. In slightly uh, happier early access news, um, Ooblets, which has been in development for uh, a long old time, is, has an early access release date of July the 15th. That's in two weeks, which is pretty exciting, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I can't wait for that. i um, been following that since very early days. And back in the days when it was you were going to be battling these things, I guess because it was inspired mm. by Pokemon, and so that they were just going to fight each other. And then it, like the rest of the game got so wholesome that that started to be weirder and weirder that they were just going to like you know, <laughs> physically violent against each other. And so they they changed it to dance battles, which seems like a very good call to me. <laughs> yeah, I play I played it at EGX Resed a couple of years ago, and I was kind of worried for it because like it looks amazing in trailers but i thought the pokemon com comparison was gonna cause it to really struggle because the the combat that was in there the the, the battles didn't have the kind of tactical depth that you get from a pokemon game um mm. whereas yeah swapping it out for dance battles just seems like the best possible solution to that problem <laughs> uh and everyone i know who's played it since then has said that it's, it's much better now and had a lot of fun with it at shows and stuff can you think of any game that wouldn't be improved by this decision? <laughs> Maybe The Last of Us. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Debatable, though. I don't, yeah, well, yeah. Maybe we should get into whether or not The Last of Us' message would still um, be transmitted through the medium of dance. Um, no, I think all games would be better with this, but it's such a, like, <clears throat> I think it's it's really nice to see it shunted sort of in what also feels like a bit more of an Animal Crossing kind of direction, the kind of life sim thing which i guess it always had i guess that's the part of its development timeline i don't with ublets that i don't really not the last of us um <laughs> that i don't really uh know like was it always like pokemon first and the life sim came along or was it was the combination of the two 
the selling point initially. I think it was the combination of the two, although I think it was sort of um, Pokemon plus Stardew Valley, I guess, was because Stardew Valley was around about that time. And yeah, always had the kind of farming and gardening and a little town with a market you were going into and that sort of stuff. Mm. And do you grow these bloods? I don't know. A lot of them do look like vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure if you're actually growing them or if you find them in, in the woods, as you do. <laughs> the normal way. Because <laughs> um, there is a game that was uh, revealed recently from the Flame in the Flood folks, the Molasses Flood. Um, their new game is called Drake's Hollow, and that is a game where you cultivate plant goblins <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then the plant goblins in some way help you defend against maybe waves of things. I did watch it played. I can't entirely remember what it is you're fighting. Um, but the idea is that sort of like the, the gardening, cultivating, caring for part of the game is, is tied to the combat part of the game in that the things that you're cultivating are, are the things that give you the power to defend them. There's a few of these games about at the moment because Atomicrops just came out last month and that's exactly that you're you're growing things to help you defeat waves of mutants that come at night um and i think the next path of exile expansion it might actually be out (laughs) now but the path of exile expansion that's that's happening around about now is all about growing the monsters that you're then going to fight so like literally farming (laughs) them (laughs) (laughs) these are enemy (laughs) monsters yeah, you plant them, they grow, they burst, you kill them. Oh my god, that, the ethics of that is just baffling. Yeah, well, it's like that's the opposite of the Ublitz decision, right? Like, that's like, <laughs> yeah. well, we're going to make Pokemon, but it'd be better if they danced because we, we like them, we don't want them to fight. We're going to make Pokemon, but you kick the shit out of the Pokemon. That's the, <laughs> that's the game. Like, yeah. Man. <laughs> Um, there's also Bug Snacks, which is the next game from the Octodad people. I don't know mm. if you farm in that, but it features weird creatures um, that you can eat, and when you eat them, your limbs change into them. <laughs> <laughs> so the the video they showed, like the first thing that happens is someone eats a uh, there's a little strawberry that walks around on its leaves as if they're legs, and then uh, a walrus um, uh, naturalist eats him, and then his arm turns into strawberries, and that's like. And they sort of stop there as if that explains it. Uh, like, this just raises further questions, really. <laughs> I didn't see that trailer, but all I've seen on Twitter for a while was people talking about the song. Um, yeah. And so I didn't watch it because I, like, my brain can't take having a song stuck in my head at the moment because there's not enough to rely <laughs> in the universe. So <laughs> need to keep it's, uh, it. Need to keep it. Caro, it's Caro, Caro Benito who are good in general. Um, but mm. also, it's a uh, the tragedy of it is they. Uh, went all this effort to get a really good song made for the trailer but then a uh someone recorded their five-year-old reacting to the trailer and just had that as the audio of the trailer and it's so adorable and hilarious that it's kind of better it's better than the song <laughs> they should just use this in the trailer now they've got to pay this kid and just uh, license it to use his his uh opinions <laughs> what's anyone been playing i appreciate that there's no eye contact so i should probably just nominate somebody graham <laughs> <laughs> um well i do i've got two things and i do a quick update so like the last time i was on the pod i think i talked about 
one of the trailers I'd seen during one of the many Naughty 3 events, which was for a first-person shooter that seemed to be inspired by fear. And I think I described it in negative terms and then walked it back over the course of about 60 <laughs> seconds. Um, but it was called Trepang 2. And there was then, shortly thereafter, a demo of it in the Steam Fest. And so I've actually played it. The demo was about half an hour long. And it was awesome. Like, it was great fun. Oh, awesome. Like, there's, over the last three to five years, I'd say, there's been a ton of first-person shooters that are inspired by Quake and Doom, stuff like Dusk and a Medieval and that sort of stuff, really fast-paced shooters um, with that kind of aesthetic. This is that, but with the aesthetic of a first-person shooter from around 2002. It's mm. entirely set in offices and warehouses with cinder block walls, lots of grey um, but lots of shelves with physics objects on them and all the <laughs> concrete kind of shatters as you shoot it. Uh, you've got an arsenal of incredibly powerful weapons and then you just cleave your way through uh, military grunts, basically. Um, you, you you get a shotgun really early on in the demo that just rips men apart when you shoot at them. You get machine guns that spray bullets everywhere with particle effects bouncing off every surface. Everything feels really powerful. It's even got Fear's slide kick move where you can slide 30 feet across a room and every single man you collide with gets flung into the air and spins around <laughs> for a little bit, cartwheels before they land again, and then struggles with the kind of semi physicsy animation system to right themselves before you blast them in the head uh it's dumb but it was fun and so i would like to remove any previous criticism i had of the trailer <laughs> which yeah does it have the um like jumping scissor kick thing from fear yes yeah you can also do a jump kick which also just sends people flying that was my favorite thing to do is like uh sneak around a group of enemies and sort of figure out like, the best approach uh, of attack and always make sure that my first, the first thing I did in combat was like jump at someone completely unsuspecting doing the scissor kick so that they just turn around to see like legs coming towards them <laughs> and then take it from there. You could do the same thing in this. It encourages you to like um, hide in darkness and that sort of stuff. And in most of the little rooms you enter, you get a moment to, uh, to see the guards and stuff before they see you. So you can do exactly that. Um, but the, nothing the, says fear like being kicked in the head by surprise. <laughs> <laughs> the other game I've been playing though uh, is much more chill, although you wouldn't maybe think it to hear about it. It's Hard Space Shipbreaker, um, which is nice. a game I've been training for the last week to remember what it's called. Um, <laughs> and and like in 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 my own defence, it's not just that it's called Hard Space Shipbreaker and that those are words that it's you know, you could easily call it ship space heartbreaker and it would make as much sense in my own brain. But ship space also... heartbreaker is definitely in the itch bundle. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's by the developers of Homeworld Deserts of Karak, hmm. the, the RTS. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but Homeworld Deserts of Karak was previously known as Homeworld Shipbreakers. And before they mm. got the Homeworld license, it was called Hardware Shipbreakers. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so now it's instead of Hardware Shipbreakers, it's Hard Space Shipbreaker. <laughs> so why don't they? Do you know why they can't call this one Homeworld if they got the license for the Karak thing? 
Well, I guess they got the Homeworld license from Gearbox, who own it. And supposedly they're working on a Homeworld 3, but I guess they also wanted to do a thing for which they did not have to give royalties to another company right. for, I assume. Mm. But, so, it, but it, the the spaceship design in it, though, is reminiscent of Homeworld games. And so like, I'll get on to this, because it's a game, it's a first-person game, rather than an RTS like Homeworld was, about stripping down spaceships for parts, basically. Um, it begins with you at, sat at a computer in your apartment in the near future, and it's just a hellhole. Like, uh, like normally when I play these kinds of games, my thought is always, why would anyone do that? Because the, the story of it is basically that you give your DNA to this company so that you can go into space, break apart ships as manual labor, and every time you die, they just clone you and recreate a new you. Uh, and I would think, why would anyone do that? But the opening three minutes of this game convince you as to why by putting you in this squalid apartment where the noise from all your neighbours is just deafening and gross. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's a bit real, Graham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is clearly like a dystopic future where there is no space and where you are impoverished. And the, the beginning is basically you're going through the sign-up process for this company and like signing the EULA and signing the contract and like just like in real life I skipped through every screen like oh no I'm not reading this just make it go away make it stop sign away my life basically um but after that point it's a really chill game it's quiet in space (laughs) and um so the idea is basically you get uh you you choose these vessels which are basically like abandoned ships, ships that people don't want anymore. And then in first person, you have to find your way inside, strip it apart, looking for certain pieces of the ship that you've been assigned as your work order, and then deposit them in the right bin. Some things go in the barge, some things go in the furnace, some things go in the processor, and you're recycling the parts. Um, and you've got... the What makes it... What introduces the challenge to it is that... Ships explode if you cut them up wrong. Um, <laughs> like if you just slice your way into the side of the ship, um, then the decompression will cause a bunch of stuff in that inside the ship to break and spray out and hit you in the face and possibly kill you. There's also the risk that you might um, slice your way inside and burst like a fuel tank and cause a massive explosion which rips the ship apart in physics in a in a beautiful physics way. Um because it's another way to think of it might be like, do you remember that weapon in the Dead Space series that you used for cutting the limbs off bugs? Like I think yeah. even Isaac, mm. the main character in that game, was like a janitor or something like that. Imagine that guy's job before the aliens turned up because you've got that cutting device. So you've got a laser, which you can use for destroying individual pieces of the ship. But you've also got a kind of horizontal or vertical laser line that you can use for cutting squares out. And you can, then the ship is completely destructible and you can destroy it at any given point or you can go for specific cut points. And that's really what you want to do. So you want to go in through the, the what's it called the air thingy the air door that makes airlock airlock <laughs> air <door. laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> you want to go into the airlock you want to find some sort of decompression <laughs> unit in, inside which is going to um 
decompress it without destroying everything, then you want to find specific cut points to get towards the, the power core so you can get that because that's worth a lot of money. So you can extract the engine in one piece without exploding because that's worth a lot of money. And you just methodically, like, I was going to say, like, carving up a buffalo, but I've never actually <laughs> done that. Like, carving up a turkey. <laughs> carving up a turkey, you just slice it um, bit by bit, taking strips off it, depositing it in the correct bin, making money, uh, and then moving <laughs> on to the next ship. The thing with the making money, though, is that you start the game in debt by, I think, a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the screenshot of this. I was like, wait, does that seem right? <laughs> yeah, and like for each ship that you strip apart, you make maybe half a million dollars. It's obviously some uh, fairly heavy-handed commentary going on here, but it's it's all in kind of good spirits. And the other part of it is you get um, points which you can use for upgrading yourself. So you can you can upgrade your laser. You can upgrade the amount of uh, the size of your oxygen tank. You can upgrade your thrusters so you can move faster through the ships and that sort of stuff. Um, but otherwise, it's just like a perfect podcast game. I've just been ha- like playing it at night for a couple of hours, putting a podcast on in the background and hmm. strip mining my way through these really nicely designed spaceships. How does Is it multiply? Yeah. I tried playing it last Sorry. night. Um, I didn't know. So in the tutorial, you've got to t- pull off these antennae with your your grappling hook thingy um mm. which i was very excited to do and then it said to salvage them and i didn't know where to do that and there was like a blue bin and a red bin that seemed like a furnace and so i tried putting it in the blue bin and that just fails the tutorial and restarts <laughs> <laughs> what 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 do you do with those things um, i don't remember where the antennae go specifically but there should be if you mouse over, like put your little crosshair over any object, it will tell you which bin it needs to go in. And so if it's not, like the processor is the blue one, the furnace is the red one. And then if you look down, there is a big green net beneath you, and that's the barge. Um, and so, uh, but it should, like the UI is very cluttered. So there are a couple of criticisms. The UI is very cluttered, so it's hard sometimes, especially when you're starting out, to extract the information that's really important from it. Like, for example, which bin does this go in? The other problem I have with it constantly is that it's got fully six, you know, six degrees of freedom. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm using a, a thing that you would say about descent in 1996. But um, <laughs> I constantly find myself getting turned around, and whatever direction I look when I'm trying to find the barge, for example, it is, I always look spin round 350 degrees because I've gone the wrong direction basically before I finally fucking find the thing. Um, but yeah, it should say on the UI and in answer to your question, Chris, because I think you asked whether it's multiplayer. Mm. Um, no, it's not. It's a single player game, at least at this mm. point. Maybe multiplayer will come later and I can certainly see because it has that sort of um, viscera cleanup detail. Yeah, that's what I feel. was going to say. Yeah, I could definitely see the appeal of strip mining these ships with a partner and calamity befalling you both as one of you accidentally cut something important and so on. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, I was really surprised it wasn't multiplayer. I just assumed it was. Like everyone was talking about it. And I thought, oh, I should really start playing that so I can play it with everybody. And then discovered, oh, you just can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, now I'm kind of, that sounds really nice because I, I also assumed it was kind of a predominantly co op thing. And I think. For some reason, because a lot of people playing Deep Rock Galactic recently, I just put it in the same bracket in my head, yeah. right? Like space industry co-op thing, um, but that is not what it is. So that's 
cool because um I actually really do like the I love that art style and the the sort of setting appeals anyway as inevitably so yeah I saw that it has something called tethers it's that do you actually like tie bits of the ship to other bits so it's like an extension for your grapple you get that pretty early on through the tutorial as it talks you through stuff but um yeah so I should explain that so like you've got this grapple as you say which you can use for ripping things off the ship or for moving um larger pieces and if you use the middle mouse button on it you get this kind of like punt move that pushes the object mm. away tethers are essentially like the the i think i think it was just cause two or something um but they contract so you if you want to move a, a very large object and you don't want to have to pull it and punt it six times to get it to its destination you can stick a tether on it with the right mouse button and then click with the right mouse button on whatever bin you want it to sail towards and it will oh, cool. drag its way there and so then you can you can have multiple tethers and so you you kind of you run down the side of a ship cutting all the points so that six different panels on the side float off and then you tether them all together and send them off all at once and they daisy chain their way towards the bin it's very satisfying <laughs> That's mostly what I used it for in Just Cause 2 as well, just putting people in the bin. <laughs> what have you been up to, Tom? I have been playing um, The Last of Us 2, which I uh, I know that Tom talked about last week. Um, so I will try not to rant about it too long. I'm having a very conflicted experience with it. I uh, And I won't spoil anything. Um, I'll talk in very broad terms about uh, the you know, the theme and message of the plot, but uh, nothing specific. Um, and I've rarely have I ever been as divided as this on like story versus game, because ultimately I, I was really excited about this. And no matter how many, how many people told me, oh God, it's so grim and so depressing. And do we really need that in, this, in these times? I wasn't entirely put off. I knew like, I, I didn't want that, but I was still... Uh, very confident I was going to enjoy this. And I kind of didn't really know why until I started playing it. And I was like, oh yeah, Last of Us 1 was a really good stealth game. Like it's just hmm. when a company with a lot of talent and a lot of money makes a stealth game, it's really good because like there's just a certain amount of science and craft to that where if you um, learn from other games and you uh, have the resources to have all the features that you need to support all the different play styles that you want, uh, you can just really knock it out of the park and make a, a thing that is great for stealth players and great for action players and everything. Um, and they've definitely done that again. Um, uh, but I want to talk about the story first because that's going to be the negative part, and I don't want to. I don't want to end on it because ultimately, I, 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 I'm glad I played it. And even at my uh, the times when I was least enjoying it. Um, or most annoyed with with what it's doing, or exasperated by what it's doing, is a better word. <laughs> um, I was still like, well, I'm not going to stop. I'm still going to play all the way through. I did eventually stop. I didn't reach the end because I got to the very end, and um, I got to a, a scene that I correctly assumed was one of the last scenes. And I thought, oh, God, they're not doing this, are they? Oh, they're not doing this. Oh, I'm really going to have to watch this. And then I found... No, I'm going to have to play this. I, they're, they're challenging me to do this thing that I really don't want to happen. And so I just thought, I'm not doing it. I'm, I think this is the end. I'm going to go on YouTube. I'm going to look up to check that it is the end and see what happens. And then I'm done because I just can't. And that's kind of the, one of the core problems I have with the story. The story is um, it's a revenge plot and your goal is to murder somebody. 
Like that's how it starts is uh, you are wronged in some way and you set out to murder someone. And so right from the start, it's just morally bankrupt. Like Last of Us 1 had horrible stuff in it and I expected Last of Us 1, but more horrible stuff along the way. But Last of Us 1, you're trying to do something worthwhile. You had at various times your, your goals are changing, but it's usually saving somebody or by the end, you're doing something a lot grander and a lot more important. Um, mm. And then all the horribleness that happens along the way, you know, nasty people come at you and you have to blow their heads off with a shotgun, slit their throats and blood geysers everywhere. And that kind of nastiness I'm okay with. I kind of, um, I don't love it. It's not my favorite thing, but it's when the goal is worthwhile and there's nastiness along the way, it's effective because it shows you how horrible this world is um, without uh, just being outright depressing. Because it's kind of like, you're trying to do something worthwhile. Even when your your goals are good, you end up having to slip people's throats and guys of blood everywhere. Um, and that's a kind of, you know, it's a certain mood and it's, it's kind of effective. But when the goal itself is just to murder somebody and along the way you have to murder a whole lot of people because they understandably don't want you to go through their territory murdering people, uh, you just have, you don't have a leg to stand on. Like the nothing about it is, is uh, worthwhile or I'm just not on board from from the word go right away, I think this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't do this. It's, it's A, it's immoral, <laughs> and B, it won't be, uh, you know, it's w- revenge plots are very well trodden. We all know that getting revenge doesn't ultimately solve anything. And that's kind of where I'm starting with this. And then the game is just going to take 30 hours to get there. <laughs> like it's just, it's so fucking long. And it, uh, point it's trying to lead you to is so obvious from the start and it doesn't provide a motivating force for all the horribleness that's going to happen all the horribleness that comes along the way is just en route to further horribleness your goal is horribleness it's always just going to be slitting people's throats stabbing a pen knife into someone's jugular and watching them bleed out that's just it all the way through um and it's kind of absurd because like it feels like the, um, I, I don't think this is the actual motive behind the game or in, in their thinking, but it's it's the game you would make if you were annoyed at everyone using Uncharted as the poster child for ludonarrative dissonance, because we do. Like that's it's the first one we mention every time ludonarrative dissonance comes up. It's like, oh, um, Nathan Drake is a, a charming, easygoing guy, and yet he kills hundreds of people. And this feels like the game of like, oh, you don't like that he's not, that he's easygoing and charming? <laughs> and then we can give you a game where that's not true. Like, well, that actually wasn't the part of the equation that we were <laughs> questioning. <laughs> like, it was the killing hundreds of people part that you could have changed. And so this is, um, wants you to take the people seriously. It wants you to care about them. It wants you to take lives seriously at times. Uh, and so people, the goons that you're murdering mourn each other. You know, someone finds a body. They're not just like, oh my God, a body. It must have been rats. They are... Uh, they will name the person who who died. They'll be like, oh my God, Skylar, they killed Skylar, I can't believe it. (laughs) And if that person had a dog, the dog will pour at their body and just kind of, it stops hunting you and just starts pouring at its dead owner. And so they they want you to feel this stuff and like care about these people's lives, but that doesn't work when what you're doing in the game is you're setting out to kill somebody and along the way, you're going to have to kill 480 other people who did nothing to you who are basically innocent as far as you know. You know, maybe a bunch of them have done bad things in this awful world, but you don't know that. And you're just walking into their territory and murdering them to get to this other person. 
And so trying to make me care about them as lives and take them seriously as lives is totally counter to the whole enterprise because it doesn't stand up to a moment's examination. Like This makes no sense. No one would kill 480 innocent people to reach one person who's guilty. And uh, the, that compounded with the length, compounded with the, the visual horribleness of what you're doing is just extremely draining. And I had moments where I'm just like, I can't believe you're going to make me do this. Like, oh my God, the... That realizing that what I'm doing is wrong is a conclusion I had 28 hours ago, <laughs> and <laughs> you have you have pussyfooted around it a couple of times. Every eight hours, you'll come up to oh maybe maybe all this killing is wrong, um, and then but then just straight back into no 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 we we should just continue to kill and kill and kill and kill and kill, and it's so Unless. bizarre. <laughs> um, I've heard a lot of people talk about you know the 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 kind of enemies mourning each other and that sort of stuff. And every time I hear it, I mean, it sounds it sounds horrifying, but I just think of that scene in the first Austin Powers movie yes, from yes. 20 years ago, <laughs> where Austin this Powers is, is a, a James Bond spoof, where Austin Powers hacks and slashes his way through henchmen, evil henchmen, and they cut away to the family of one of the henchmen <laughs> getting a call <laughs> about yeah. how... Uh, and I think the line is something like, no one ever thinks about the families of henchmen. <laughs> it's, yeah, his the henchman's wife gets the call, and then she has to tell his uh, their son that he's dead. And it's uh, the, that joke is funny, and it works because the whole enterprise doesn't stand up to a moment's examination. As soon as you take human life seriously, yeah. it all falls apart. It doesn't make any sense. Of course, like you know, if you actually think of these as human lives, you can't be doing the stuff you're doing. And this is a game that wants you to think about the, them as human lives, and also wants you to carry on doing what you're doing. I think um, we've had the conversation on the podcast before, just just on that point about how like the the thing that saves games from being totally tasteless a lot of the time is the fact that the people in them don't really experience pain, right? Yeah. Like you you tend to even in a a gritty military game like a Call of Duty or something, people kind of die instantly from bullet wounds, which is not how that works in real life. We you, very, games very rarely show people maimed or dying in a painful way. Um, and that's for a good reason because people find it off-putting and it makes them not want to do some cool gun shoots. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did, I eventually, I, it was only after I was done with it that I kind of realized in retrospect, it has two stories to it. And I only realized in retrospect that I actually like one of them. <laughs> I didn't notice it at the time because the first one is so depressing and then the second one feels like it's just a little interlude in the middle of it. Like you're going to visit this character for a couple of, for an hour or two and then come back to the main one. But actually it's just half the game. And I wish I'd known that because um, I, like, like I say, this is the story I actually like. It's a similar kind of thing. It's revenge themed, but it has more humanity to it and more heart to it. And there's, there's moments of people caring about each other and uh, uh, having some kind of self-examination and some kind of learning and, and progress in their arc. Uh, but I didn't at the time. I didn't really engage with it because I kept thinking, "Oh, we're going to switch back to the to the main narrative soon, right?" But it's not. It's just ten hours of that. And so at the time, I was like, "Come on, why, when is this going to end? This this weird interlude. Why why are we not switching back to the main one?" And then looking back on it now, I think actually that story kind of held together a lot better and had a lot more um, mm -hmm. going for it. And I like that character a lot more as well. Um, and so it's just a very weird structure. It does a lot of t jumping around in time and and characters, which I usually like. But here it's it's very strange to just leave an out it behind at a cliffhanger moment for ten hours before you get back to it and resolve that. Um, is, that's um, only 
sorry. No, go on. Uh, I was just going to say that the actual, the high level direction of the plot, I, you know, those are my issues with that. Um, the actual moment to moment dialogue is good and the performances are great. Um, it's, it is all the things people have been saying about, you know, um, a sort of new high point in digital acting. It's um, both on the tech side and also just the, the performances of the actors um, are really, really good. And it's there was a moment like really like after 25 hours of misery or something, somebody smiled and I found myself smiling too. And I thought, fuck, this actual, like all the tech and the performances are so good. They can control my emotions in a good way if they want to, but mm. they won't, haven't chosen to for 25 hours. They just get this <laughs> one little moment of, of, of happiness briefly and then back to the misery. Um, I was going to ask, um, is there any reason in the plot why, like, you have to kill the people? Because that's the thing that sort of strikes me as strange. So there's kind of there's two kinds of killing in it. One is in game when you are in control, and then the other is in cutscenes. And uh, it's the in game stuff. A lot of the in game stuff, it's optional but in a weird way so you enter a huge open area with like 15 20 people hunting you and in theory you don't have to kill any of them if you know where to go you could find the little gap that you're supposed to squeeze through or the door that you have to push hard to open and just leave but you don't know where you're supposed to go and so it's just not practical to do that like on your first run anyway on a second run you could easily do it but on the first time through there's no way to know which way direction you're supposed to be going and when you do find the exit, it's going to be something kind of subtle. It's going to be a, a bit of a little bit hidden, and it's just not practical to hunt for that whilst you're being hunted by twelve different people. And so you end up killing all those people for a very like prosaic practical reason. <laughs> like it's just very difficult to know how I leave this arena without killing all of you. So I'm going to kill all of you, which is crazy yeah. because um, a that's the bulk of the body count. You know, that's when I say you kill 480 people. Those are the 480 people. It's the ones in game who technically you don't have to kill. But A, it's not really practical to avoid it. And B, obviously the game doesn't want you to avoid it because it has a whole weapon upgrade system. You know, every mechanic in the game is just about killing. There is zero non-lethal options in the whole thing. Every single thing you do to humans kills them. Um, And they want you to care about gun upgrades. And oh my God, the gun upgrade system, the way way it's presented is incredible. (laughs) It's so well done. Just like the physicality, every single weapon you know, she uh, unchambers the round and takes the magazine out and lays it on the desk with a satisfying thunk. And then for every single upgrade, there's a unique animation of how she unscrews that part of the weapon and then bolts something else on. And then I imagine some of those had to be redone depending on what upgrades are already present because the way she moves it, if it already has a scope on it, she can't hold it from that angle. And so she'd have to like do, clean the barrel in this way. And I can't believe the amount of work in, that's gone into it. And of course, if you were trying to not use these weapons, that, like that, that concept was absurd. The game is built for killing. Um, so that's, uh, those are the gameplay kills. And then the cutscenes, uh, you are your character kills you know, without your intervention, without any choice on your part. And those kills are... Um, much more graphic and much more nasty and you get you just are watching people bleed out in front of you by your own hands people who did nothing wrong people who you put into this situation and they tried to defend themselves and you've done this to them now and it's very um trying to make you feel awful about it um and uh there are also scenes of of people being tortured and maimed um some of those i just had to skip because it was just too much um but it's kind of weird because the kills in the cutscenes where it's very graphic and really you're pushed to feel something. These characters are humanized in 
uh, sometimes little ways, like somebody you kill is just playing a game on their phone when you find them. And so you just, as they're bleeding out, you're still hearing their little game playing. Um, and that just has this effect of sort of reminding you of, of who they were before you killed them. It's very effective. It's very well crafted. <laughs> they're very good at making you feel terrible about what you're doing. Um, and th yeah, those are sort of presented as the ones that have the most emotional weight to your character and how they're affecting her. But of course, the moral status of a lot of those are a lot of them are kind of accidents they're like it's your fault because you went into the situation with a gun or a knife and uh, threatened these people and then ultimately they came at you and you stabbed them and they died it's your fault in a court of law you'd be convicted of this <laughs> but uh it's more understandable than the other 25 kills i did on the way here because i just hunted those people down like they didn't know i was there nobody even found out i was present i just slit all of their throats one by one which is a horrific insane serial killer uh, act but of course that isn't referenced in the plot because they don't know whether you did it or not so uh, there's a there's as always a huge separation between what's happening in the game and what's happening in the story a thing for which there is a term <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny because it does make that term worse right like and i think it's interesting like identifying that like they've solved the wrong problem with nathan drake because the argument against that term against the lunar narrative dissonance is that it fails to account for genre the, you know, violence is not equal in different genres of fiction. It means different things in different contexts. In Austin Powers, uh, which is explicitly a play on a genre, it it sends up the, you know, it, it, it makes a comedy out of, um, you know, suddenly doing this hard left turn out of the genre that the audience understands they're in and into something else uh, for comic effect. And so there's always some things like the bad faith about the argument that Nathan Drake murders hundreds of people while wisecracking because he's a matinee adventure hero and mm. those other characters are not humanized particularly they're kind of often sort of faceless mercenaries and kind of cartel goons that are piling out of jeeps and falling off stuff and it's understood in that context and you can have a broader conversation about whether it's kind of appropriate that we you know can trivialize violence to that extent within certain genres of fiction but it's nonetheless true that they are and so you know, the goal, and, and I think the, the idea that that is somehow completely dissonant um, comes from A, a misunderstanding of genre, and also B, a, a sense that all games must proceed towards a kind of pure simulation where everything has the kind of appropriate consequences that you'd expect. So if someone is funny, they're probably not also a murderer or, <laughs> because uh, that, that would be strange in real life, which is where you get that dissonance thing from. Um, but that I think we kind of know by now that, like, games simulation is not the end result of games and also a lot of the time it's kind of a trap and it sounds like it's kind of a trap here because they're simulating a hell of a lot more they're simulating people's dogs being sad they've, they've got simulated dog sadness as a <laughs> back of the box feature um if this was a 90s game you know um that would be like something you'd put in a box out like it's now got sad dog technology thanks to <laughs> yep. peter molyneux or something like that um, <laughs> um but um, but they're not simulating any of the other millions of things that you would hypothetically be able to possibly do, like non-lethally restrain somebody or uh, wait for them to go to the loo and then sneak past them <laughs> or wait for them to go to sleep, wait, you know, 48 hours to pass through an environment, you know what I mean? Something like that. Wait for them to yeah. move on. Wait for an argument to break out between them when they get frustrated being unable to find you because they're humans. Like that's it's not simulated to that degree. And so I think there's sometimes like an essential hypocrisy to, um, I guess, trying to like humanize games through simulation. It's kind of an interesting problem because it's like, yeah. 
impossible to do it sufficiently and you're just going to make the distance worse one of my so i did you know the, the reason i still played it almost all the way through and still basically recommend it <laughs> despite all this uh, if you're if you're a player like me is because um the stealth bits are, are fantastic and it's uh they're almost always an open area with people roaming dynamically you know there's very little scripting of, of this stuff maybe the intro to the scene will be scripted but then once you're in it it's just ai and um very rich uh interconnected multi-leveled environments just loads of really good environment design um kind of reminds me of, of the best moments of the far cry games uh in terms of sneaking around um an ever-changing environment and uh one of the first one that really works uh, really well for me was the first time that uh you face uh multiple dogs because <laughs> <laughs> it's the dogs unfortunately are incredibly effective at finding you if you're playing in a stealth way because they can smell you and you in the there's has this batman vision thing where um, you can see people through walls and that's called listen mode and in listen mode you can see what dogs can smell <laughs> so you can, can by you listening real hard you can smell the dog is smelling <laughs> <laughs> can you hear what the, you can see that the dog is smelling? <laughs> uh, <laughs> You see a you see your own smell trail if you listen hard enough. <laughs> so you see that that basically the path you just took, which the dog is now following, and so you know where the dog is going to go because he's going to follow that that smell trail, and it's it's really messes with your whole comfort zone of stealth. Um, but of course, you don't want to kill dogs if you can possibly avoid it. Like much much, uh, I can take pleasure in, in shooting someone in the head with an arrow, but I can't really take pleasure in shooting a dog in the head with an arrow. Um, and so I'm trying to kill all the humans, but leave the dogs alive. And <laughs> it it almost kind of works. It it basically works um, in that if you, because dogs are partnered with humans, if you kill the human, like I say, the dog mourns the human and they don't, it's not like their AI turns off. They're still conscious and they can still see you if you get close enough, but they won't actively like sniff you out. They don't care about interesting smells once their owner is dead, <laughs> <laughs> which is a thing I had to learn about dog psychology in order to to get through this. Um, but that encounter was just like uh, I must have spent like forty minutes on it and just hunting maybe twelve people um, and two or three dogs um, and trying to figure out how I kill them all without having to kill the dogs and just leave a ghost town of sad dogs basically <laughs> before I move on. Can, uh, can multiple dogs be sad about the same human? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, <laughs> I don't think so because I think they pair um, uh, I think they pair you know in a one-on-one -on -one basis but they can get over their grief if a new human comes along and kind of takes ownership of them. So I thought, like, I, right. oh, I killed his owner. I can just forget about that dog. He's going to stay there forever. But actually, if a, if a dogless human meets a grieving dog, <laughs> they can form a new pair, <laughs> like molecules bonding. <laughs> and now they're going to hunt you again, and they're a pain in the ass. And then now the dog is at risk again, because now maybe I've got to kill the dog if he sniffs me out. So I've got to uh, be careful of that <laughs> and try and kill the human. Sounds increasingly like Dwarf Fortress or something. <laughs> like, yeah. that. like this entire civilization is going to collapse because a dog's going to die I mean, and a man's going to mourn it so hard. You can definitely. But also, throw... this is what the game is about. Like you've just identified, this is what the, what the game is about, as far as I, I can I can see. 
This, I mean, there's a lot dogs. more emotional. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more emotional complexity and depth to the dog AI than there is to the main character. <laughs> um, do do dogs attack you, or do they just find you? Oh, they attack you, uh, and it's it's one of those kind of like. Uh, not not quite a quick time event, but you know they pounce on you, and now you've got to mash X to to get them off, and it's um, to wrestle. Yeah, which is not fun. And then of course you by that top point you're surrounded by people. I just every time I was detected, I just reloaded again because um, it does have. I got to give credit for a really good difficulty options. You can customize all individual axes of the difficulty. So I was able to turn the stealth detection down, which is how I like to play stealth games. I don't want it to be hard to remain undetected. Um, and I can turn that down to light, but I can leave uh, other things on on hard. And I can also change the checkpointing frequency. And so I put that on very light. And that means it saves more than once a minute. And so I never lost significant progress. And that's really good, especially for stealth stuff, like just making one slip up and being able to go back 30 seconds and um, carry on from there is great. Mm. And then some of those... Um, there was an encounter late in the game that I just had such an amazing time clearing it out. It was Tom Tom Senior last week took issue with with this. I was very glad that eventually they introduced a human faction where every motherfucker in that faction has done something wrong. <laughs> I can feel fine about <laughs> killing these people. Like I wouldn't kill them in real life, but in the context of a video game where I've already killed 480 basically innocent people, when they finally introduce a faction, we're like, oh, these fuckers can just die. I will kill all of them. <laughs> that was a, a huge relief for me. And in fact, ironically, um, I'd been, you know, I said earlier, it's not practical to find how to leave an area before you killed everybody because you're being hunted and the exit is often not not obvious. The first fucking time that happened to me, 27 hours into the game, when I'm fighting these uh, absolutely horrible people, uh, I just found the exit right away as soon as I walked in and I went through it and thought, oh, this is the way to progress. And I thought, hmm, actually, <laughs> if I'm going to kill 480 innocent people in this game, there's no way I'm letting these 20 absolute assholes live. I'm going to go back and kill them all. So <laughs> actually, that one is on me. I chose to kill those people. <laughs> I decided to do it. Do they have uh, dogs? Uh, yes. Um, they don't, Were they don't evil dogs? <laughs> yeah. I didn't kill those dogs because by that point, I was I was good enough to um, to work around it and just kill the owners. Um, but yeah, there was a, a, a kind of it's kind of a, a villa and it has multiple uh, sections to it. It's the biggest encounter in the game, I think. There's just so many enemies, um, probably like 30 or more in total. And it's complex and there's chained up infected. They've, they've chained up the infected to kind of torment them. Um, and of course, you can release those and, and set them loose on them, which is great. Um, and I ended up sort of in a... The way I'd been doing all throughout, just methodically picking off the, uh, well, let loose of the infected, let that create a distraction, then pick off stragglers um, very slowly, try and wh uh, whittle down the numbers, and then um, creep into the house, clear that out, have some very tense moments where you know someone finds me in the middle of a uh, stealth takedown of someone else, and I, have, I don't have time to sneak up on them, so I've got to improvise and uh, shoot them with a silenced assault rifle to take them down before anyone hears. And then... Um, go upstairs and it joins onto another part of the villa which is also absolutely crawling with people and a huge number of, of new enemies to deal with and i was about to do it all the same way and then i realized there's only one like route joining this house to, to where i came from if i just I'm, and i'm low on on arrows i'm low on silence pistol shots i'm low on all these resources i've been using to take these people out stealthily 
if I just, what I'm not at low on is proximity mines. You have improvised IEDs. And uh, if I just lay those in this one route that they can possibly take and then go back out into the courtyard, there's a rooftop there and I can climb on top of that. And I just got a scope for my, my bolt action rifle that I hadn't been using. And so I've got loads of ammo for it. And I can lie down on that roof and snipe them from there. And if they ever, uh, you know, I'm not going to be amazing at sniping. I'm not going to be able to mow them down or anything. It's a slow firing thing. But if they ever do figure out where I am and try and get to me, they're going to have to go through my IEDs. And so um, just picking them off in a, uh, very methodically. I actually, I was, I picked my sniping spot so well that they couldn't see, figure out where I was shooting them from. Um, and then, you know, trying to catch them all as they come out of the building to investigate the shots, uh, shooting them, not being able to catch all of them, and then just hearing this boom as somebody has, has figured out the route to get to me, but walked straight into my IEDs. Um, it's at its height, it is, you become like a master guerrilla um, fighter where you've just, you've engineered the situation uh, in a way that is so brutally unfair to the other people that it kind of doesn't matter how many of them there are, or how well armed they are, you've just kind of outplayed them and that is, it's dark, uh, but it's very, very satisfying, especially because, as I say, these people were shits. <laughs> <laughs> I can uh, enact a total tone shift, if you like. <laughs> yeah, that's... Because <laughs> um, there's two games that I, was, I have played, and they're very different to one another, but I'll go with the one that I have a short amount to say about, uh, which is uh, Kiwi, a co-op game about funny little kiwi birds that type messages using their butts um <laughs> it's not a lot like the last of us part two <laughs> in, in in many ways um this was a game that uh pip found a demo of in the steam kind of demo uh extravaganza thing it's kiwi as in the bird but it's spelt key as in keyboard key k-e-y-w-e we as in us and basically um uh, it's a mod it's a kind of co-op game in the kind of vein of something like overcooked those sort of like mini game focused kind of co-op challenges where you got to sort of solve puzzles together uh, or like achieve a task together uh, um, but you each play a 3d little kiwi bird a customizable kiwi you can unlock various hats and glasses and things but otherwise they're kind of relatively realistically drawn um, it looks kind of um, i think it's in unity but it looks kind of unreal engine in its sort of level of detail it's 3d uh, sort of slightly isometric and you work in a post office obviously and um and there are two there are two challenges in the demo but my understanding is that there's a lot more in, in the eventual game which isn't out yet um and they are one where uh, you have to press a button to get a message on the radio that tells you a letter you need to write very quickly which is often something like forest fire today or something like that and then you have a huge like typewriter keyboard, um, but where where the keys are all in weird places, and sometimes they rotate, and sometimes they move, or sort places with other keys. And you've got to run around together and use your little butt slam to press the keys. To you know, one of you has to hold shift so you can get a capital letter for the other one um, <laughs> to type out these messages, um, and then um, and then send them. And it's like how many messages you can send in two minutes. So it's this sort of mad dash to do it. Uh, and the other mode, I mean, that was fun. The other mode, which is my uh, favorite of the two, is you are in this, like, the the kind of this um, messaging, messenger room, and you have this sort of, um, I guess, stamp kit. You have all these fragments of words, so like a couple of letters um, 
you know, syllables basically that are stuck on labels that are scattered all around this kind of multi-level post office environment. And you're Kiwi sized, so you're leaping and climbing over all this kind of like chairs and tables and desks and stationery and stuff. Um, and again, a message will come through and tell you the message you need to assemble. And you have to put all these like uh, labels together to spell the message that you've been asked to spell and then work together to like bring the stamp down and turn it into a little letter. And then you've got to give, you've got to stuff the letter into the pocket of, I think it's a cassowary, like an emu type kind of peck, pecking bird. Um, but the, the, the bird will peck you if it's not repeatedly given treats. So while one person's trying to stuff the envelope into the pocket of the cassowary, the other one has to run off and grab a treat and feed it. And it's really cute. It's really fun. And if you do well, you get more points, which you can spend on like aviator sunglasses or penguin themed feathers. You know, it's a game, video game things, but we both really liked it. And it, um, uh, you know, we didn't spend a huge amount of time with it because you kind of blast through the, the amount of demo that's there pretty quickly. Um, but we played it local co-op. I believe it'll have online co-op when it launches, but the beta doesn't. Sorry, the, the, the demo doesn't. Um, but it was really good. And actually, I often find um, I often find that over, games like Overcooked are of a degree of complexity and often are about... They're about um, creating a system that can handle any request that comes in. You have like a finite amount of pieces and you're going to be asked to rearrange them in a bunch of different ways to meet the, the meal orders and things that come to you. And so they're, they're kind of like project management games. And as a consequence, the bossiest person in the room, which is <laughs> often me, becomes <laughs> the, the project manager for the game, which isn't actually how most people have fun. Um, and I think Overcooked can be fun. But for me, it's it's certainly like I feel quite self conscious about like not wanting to tell people what to do, but also like wanting to do that. Um, and so I find it quite stressful. Whereas at this, I really liked because the conditions of your co cooperation are always changing. Like bits of the keyboard move around, so you can't even agree on which letters are whose. And so you've all, you're always kind of reacting to something that's right in front of you. And um, it's nice, basically. It's Kiwi, which I thought was cute. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure who, who made it. I'll just check quickly. Um, it's by Stone Wheat and Sons. I, I don't know who they are, but they've made a cool game. And it was just a bit different. So that was nice. Oh, um, that actually just remind me. Sorry, just this will just be a quick yeah, one. Go on. but, um, I did play... Uh, Monsters Expedition through Curious Exhibition. Oh yeah, game what <laughs> Pepper's right? working on. Yeah, yes, um, and it's it's absolutely lovely. It's uh, um, the central mechanic about chopping down trees and, and rolling the logs into the water to cross to new islands. It's definitely got the Stephen Sausage Roll thing where uh, it's a simple mechanic, but there are so many different sort of edge cases and weird interactions that you can produce that have that have their own unique answers to them, and so. Uh, the depth of the puzzles you can create out of it, I can already tell is going to be really deep because it's just things like, what if I'm standing on a log that's facing north and I try and roll a log that's facing west on top of it? Uh, how does it behave then? And then what happens if I'm standing on a log and I push against this? And mm. um, yeah, is that. And then of course, uh, you know, the whole presentation and, and the writing is uh, really cute and lovely. Oh, I'll pass that along to Pip. Should be pleased to hear that because I think that's the first game Pip's written for that has come out in some form so that's exciting um the other game that i've been playing a bit of and i've made maybe two hours of it and i want to caveat my my thoughts on it with that is cloud punk which i had seen getting 
like a fair amount of bugs. They kept popping up in my various feeds and things. And I was curious about it because I tend to be curious about narrative stuff and narrative stuff with a slightly different approach and about um, cyberpunk things. And I think I've got, got a bit of a weird relationship with cyberpunk personally because I have some like fairly big reservations about it as a genre, but I also like it's probably the genre I've worked in the most and sometimes that's related but also like you know regardless um it's it's sort of it's always of interest like I was interested in see treatments of it and 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 see which direction it's taken in and this has a fairly interesting setup um cloudpunk is set in a kind of it's set in the kind of blade runner city that you might be imagining when you think of cyberpunk flying cars stuff like that and you are the a delivery driver with a flying car in a kind of voxel based uh city and your job is to you know the 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 cell is that your it's your first night on the job as a delivery driver and your job is to take packages from a to b and in doing so kind of encounter the the story of this environment and the first thing i would say about it is the environment itself is has some real moments of um uh spectacle it's it's all done in voxels and that has some interesting kind of consequences but once you kind of get used to it they the combination of the lighting and the environment and the um, music especially actually when you're walking around outside of your car in first person can be quite effective it feels like it's one of those good video game places like um with rendered with sufficient detail and enough detail um uh that it it feels somewhat alive there's tons of traffic in in the skies i guess um the the sort of streets are pretty busy and full with uh characters but i'll get to the characters separately um and it's kind of a pleasant place to kind of spend time and that initially appears to couple well with the kind of delivery driver thing like i think there's i think there's unexplored narrative potential in the delivery driver genre which i would put things like you know you're a truck simulator or omnibus simulator or elite or you know any game where you're just you know, you're in quite a meditative headspace because you're going from A to B. Like, I don't think those games necessarily need additional challenge on top of what's there. And I think there is, um, I think, and some games I think have, have, have started to approach this sort of thing. Jalopy is one of them. Uh, Wheels of Aurelia is another one. There's definitely something in this, like driving games where you're driving as a way of uh, being told a story. Um, unfortunately for me, Cloudpunk really hasn't worked. And I was I was sort of I, I definitely like I was ready for it to be like, I think this is gonna be one of my surprise kind of, you know, favorites of the last couple of months or something, because something about it the, the aesthetic resonated with me. And I've really bounced off it and it's a bit of a shame. And I don't want to go on and like, you know, take it apart too hard, but I think there's a bunch of things that feel like um missed opportunities and a few things that feel like ex big fairly severe execution problems. And so one of the missed opportunities is that you're told kind of that this it is set in a determinate point in the future, thousands of years in the future. This city is kind of vast in a way that you can't imagine. You're told early on that it 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 goes down for hundreds of miles and up for thousands of miles, which is like a unthinkable distance on Earth terms. Um and its verticality is kind of why it's called cloud punk, I think. You know, that's the notion of it. Um, you know, thick bands of cloud kind of separating the skyscrapers. Um, but presumably for engine reasons, there's quite a limited height ceiling um, <laughs> in any given layer of the city. So so actually your, your travel is predominantly horizontal and um, kind of terrestrial, really. Like you can fly, you can go up and down, but not a lot. And you can only park in designated parking kind of pads. And so that limits where you can go. And 
Uh, if you look up, you see the kind of underside of a different cloud layer with like the lights of the city above you peeking down through the clouds, which is kind of a cool effect. And if you look down, you see clouds as well. And so, um, uh, but then to transition between layers of the city, you have to travel to the edge of the map and fly into what is ostensibly like an elevator that recalibrates the altitude your car can go to, but it's really a teleporter. And so the game feels incredibly horizontal and that's not necessarily a deal breaker, save for the fact that like the verticality and the kind of, you know, sense of vertigo that you get from those sorts of cyberpunk cities is, is the, is the selling point. And it actually doesn't deliver that. And then the other side of that is like, I think one of the things that's good about it being a voxel game is it's, it's not trying to render everything in perfectly lifelike detail, like something like Cyberpunk 2077 is going for. It's, it's much more abstract. And I think in being abstract, um, and I think we've all encountered games like this, like you can do some really cool things with scale and you can express things that are quite impressive and hard to do in other contexts with that. Like there are some, you know, there are Minecraft builds that are capable of blowing you away with the scale of the thing, even if they're rendered out of Minecraft blocks, because they can, you know, you can render stuff at a scale. I don't know if it's necessarily an engine limitation. I suspect it is that prevents them from doing the verticality, but it seems like such a missed opportunity. Like I can imagine spending time in that game and getting vertigo, appreciating the size of the place. Yeah. And being grateful for the fact that it's been made using slightly simpler technology um, in order to be able to deliver that. So the fact that it doesn't, it just feels like one of those sorts of like, um, I guess it's it's sort of a selling point or a, like a experience you would really want to have just sort of sitting by and it's not possible, unfortunately, which is a shame. Although the, the, I would say the environment itself is the strength of the thing. On that verticality point, did anyone play an indie game? I think it was called Against the Wall where the entire game is just a massive vertical wall. <laughs> like there is no yeah. ground, there is no ceiling. And that was amazing. Cause when you were talking about the sense of vertigo you wanted from this, Chris, um, mm. I think I had that with that game because it was, it's, that's just so fundamentally different to everything else. Like <laughs> it's the only game I played where, you know, all of the space is vertical. I guess some of it is horizontal, but only in one dimension. Um, and yeah, just, just knowing there's sort of infinity below you and infinity above is really unique, weird feeling. So yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a real shame this game didn't manage that. Yeah, and it, it sort of, it, it feels weird as a criticism because obviously you don't want to tell the developer like, well, this is the game you should have made rather than spend focus on the game they did, obviously. But it just feels like, given that's so central to the fantasy that not getting that um, feels like a shame. And actually I did note that on the Steam page, um, for the game, it does sort of, um, you know, as he says, it's, its top bullet point is explore an immense vertical cyberpunk city. And actually, I think that's a slightly misgiven because it's it's not really, it's horizontal, but with teleporters that you're told are taking you up and down levels, but you're not really given any visual sign of that. So, um, you know, I think I think that's a, a missed opportunity. Um, yeah. The other part of it uh, that I think has... Um, unfortunately as, as as torpedoed it for me is is the abusive side and there's two sides to that one very straightforward one is that the voice acting is extremely hit and miss um a lot of it is fine but when it's bad it's bad like it's just not uh come out well if, if it feels like actors that don't really have sufficient context for their lines a lot of the time the entire game um is voice acted and it has a lot of voice acting and um has a lot of talking and all of it is subtitled, but also you can't skip any of it. It's, it's, it's happening as you're moving around, it's happening as you're driving. 
these are conversations with your kind of controller back at the delivery company that you work for, um, with an AI you brought with you from home, um, who is a dog as well, with um, um, with a uh, who's called Camus, but spelt like uh, Camus, as in the French uh, writer. Uh, I don't know if that means anything in the game. It doesn't appear to. Um, and you know with other characters and things and the there's a bunch of there's just a bunch of issues with with that i think one is one is that the there's the writing has a quality to it which i kind of recognize from quite a bit of games writing at the moment but it it just feels badly in need of an editor and streamlining it's uh, like I feel I feel always weird weighing in on on like game writing because it's very close to home in, in a lot of ways, but like it's quite strikingly overwritten, I think, and it falls into this trap, which I think I think you see more and more actually through the attempt to humanize game stories, uh, which is um, it is it is vastly expository. Every every character, if they're not explaining something about the world to you, is pining on the world and telling you what the message of the game is in this moment just explicitly it's very much telling you rather than showing you things um but it's also wants to strike for like a natural tone of voice of the characters the kind of thing that uh you get in 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 games like um uh what remains of edith finch or, or gone home and things where characters speak like people and the collision of those two things is is very very difficult to get right, and I don't think they have basically. And what it results in is characters. There's a desire, I think, for the conversations to sound natural. So characters are constantly asking each other questions, basically to prompt the next bit of explanation that the game needs to give you. And that means that every conversation in the game feels about five times longer than it should be, and therefore feels weirdly unnatural. Um, you're you know you play a kind of young woman who's this is her first night in the city. And she's also kind of like a fish out of water, but that and that plays very strongly against, I think, one of the pre- predominant um, things about cyberpunk, which tends to be that people are enmeshed in this environment and enmeshed in the technology about it. Is the way that the technology warps itself around familiar and new forms of class struggle and oppression and all these other things that make it punk. This sort of the kind of um, dystopianness of that clashes really hard with a pretty fluffy script really that is pretty friendly and and kind of positive and bouncy in other ways and wants to have like you know jokes about your your fun dog ai as well as sort of more serious considerations that that land very um very flat and as a result it manages to end up sort of both overwritten and vague both exposit over expository and sort of with this false attempt at naturalism that doesn't really land there's a lot of people answering questions with questions um in an attempt to allow the game to articulate all the information it's trying to dump on you um and all of this with some really rough voice acting and so the combination of all of those things is i can't relax when i'm playing it at all hmm. um because the other side of it is all the conversations you have are like pretty plot critical like everything is important and so you're never going to zone out and just do deliveries and actually all the deliveries are like plot missions you're not going and picking a mission for yourself or something like that at least not in the hours that I've played. And so what I think sells itself as an experience of pootling around a city or soaring around, like, you know, with the sort of Vangelis style soundtrack and taking this place in is actually an experience in like um, listening to a not particularly good script 
while um while doing an unrelated task and trying to take in the details of the story that you'll need to remember and i just i just find that really for some reason i find that really takes me out of it completely which is just a shame because i think there's i think there's something in this formula that could work really well part of me wishes it was possible to simply put the radio on and find out about the world by listening to the radio from that world yeah and there are actually there are inklings of that you hear like over here there are advertising boards and stuff all the stuff you expect from like a neon cyberpunk city and you overhear things that are way more compelling than the highly expository conversation that you get from everyone else and it gets to the point where i'm nervous you see a named npc you can talk to them and i'm always nervous about doing that because it might mean a three minute kind of painfully voice acted <laughs> conversation that absolutely forces the the themes of of the game on you um rather than being allowed to absorb it in your own time and i think it's just a very it's a bit of an odd duck for that reason uh unfortunately uh, and like i don't say any of this with with relish really because i really did want to like it more than i do i've played a bunch of these kind of road trip games and because I, I i i i like road trip stories in general and so i really want them to be good and i like games that are about driving without racing and and i'm i continue to be surprised that i think driver san francisco is probably <laughs> one of the best of them i've played like it, it is a game in which you are it's a ubisoft game in which you are in a coma and have the magic ability to hop into any car in the city and possess whoever is currently driving it but there is just a staggering amount of dialogue and and uh, voice acting in that game and that mm. every car you drop into basically you drop into the middle of a conversation between whoever is driving and the passenger seat next to you, uh, and then can uh, kind of react basically to those conversations in some ways by getting little mini side missions. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's, that speaks to something, which is it's very similar in GTA as well, where obviously, you know, not just the kind of you're driving somewhere with someone in GTA and they tell you a story thing, but actually just how much of the character of those games, like it or not, comes from your kind of ambient absorption of the place through its radio stations and all of that other kind of ancillary stuff. And I think I think that's the connective tissue here because, you know, uh, I think driving games are really about places, to be honest, a lot of the time. And there's something of that to the cyberpunk genre, particularly where it overlaps with noir. And... Um, chat very chatty noir with jokes doesn't work great <laughs> and nor does nor does sort of noir soap opera right or cyberpunk soap opera like it, if it's too busy with characters and you can't sink into the environment then and you don't really have any sense and sense of place which again is compounded by the verticality thing i think you end up with something that doesn't quite work unfortunately but it's, it's the thing is and it was interesting uh i i second guess myself massively on this so i went and read a bunch of the steam reviews and it's actually getting really really positive reviews so i do want to press on with it just in case the story does something that surprises me but so far i found it kind of um hard to feel comfortable in and hard to feel kind of really keen to keep going with which is a, a big shame um but yeah that's that's how i felt about that that idea you mentioned of um kind of absorbing that world through the radio i'd really like to play that that sounds like a good way of doing it if your if your job is just sort of delivery and something quite passive and the mm. thing you want to sort of convey to the player is this world um i'd really like to it'd be interesting to make a game where all of the actual narrative is just from a radio station and 
the only player input is like maybe there's a job listings board and you choose who to work for and the people you're working for are people who might have been you've heard yeah. mentioned on the radio or um, and shape it in that way yeah i was thinking about that because i think inevitably given like what i do now and stuff i was immediately thinking about this like if someone pitched like I, we want to make a cyberpunk city package delivery you know job economy like gig economy simulator uh what do we do with the narrative i think that's that that would be the thing that would spring to my mind as well like building something around the city itself and the sort of incidental nature of it like i really like that idea that kind of springs out of my head so i'm a bit wary of trying to imprint something on cloudpunk that it's not trying to do um but i don't think that necessarily excuses the other issues with just like writing in vr basically um but yeah that's that Mm, shame. Anyway, shall we do some questions from questions? Yeah. Yeah. Enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> Big energy Wednesdays at the Crate and Crowbar. I'm feeling low energy and so I'm overcompensating. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I live. Um <laughs> uh, our first question comes from David, who writes, Hi all. I greatly enjoyed the discussion a few episodes back about feeling nostalgia for time periods that you didn't live through yourselves. Though I can't say I ever shared his taste in trousers, I was happy to hear that Chris shares my love of prog. In case you're still into it, I found that prog has largely moved to Scandinavian. I highly recommend listening to Anecdoten or Gusta Berling Saga. I'm going to pronounce that wrong. And it's for Marsh and Manufactured Nostalgia. Try reading the titular story in Kelly Link's Magic for Beginners. It really takes the sort of feeling that you described about Buffy and recreates it with something that exists only within the story. Also, to spoil Marsh's nostalgia for the wind and the willows, uh, um, check out Wildwood, a retelling from the working class creature's point of view by Jan Neal. <laughs> I should probably shoehorn a question in here. What musical genre best represents your favorite genre of game? How does that match up with your preferences for music in and of itself? I like how many of your listeners provide answers to their own questions in this space, but I find myself unable to do so at this time. We had our second child a few months ago and double duty dadding has driven the memory of what it's like to actually play games from my mind. Um, <laughs> Uh, I rarely have leisure time, so listening to the pod while cooking or running errands has been more welcome than usual, especially considering the horrible shitstorm that we're all living through. Take care, David. So I thought this was an interesting question because, like, I, when I was a teenager, there was a really close overlap between the music I loved and the games that I loved. And, and in both cases, the common thread was like, I would like to be transported somewhere else and I would like to be told, I would like to be told the story. Like, I am not kind of interested in living more intensely in the life that I have, which I think is one of the things that music is good for. I want to please be a, just tell me about a wizard. And that <laughs> fueled my like teenage love of, of metal and prog and uh, a bunch of different um, forms of, of that thing. It wasn't always, you know, high fantasy necessarily. Um, I was into a lot of, I don't know what genre you would call it, just sort of angst prog basically which is about being possibly maybe you're a vampire but you basically just live in a flat kind of, <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of music made by um people with six string basses uh you know in california and so that was a lot of my youth and going to gigs where men who wanted to believe the same things about themselves in long leather trench coats would stand exactly six feet apart from one another nodding appreciatively in a sense, modeling what going to a gig might be like in our own future, um, <laughs> which is basically the sole kind of predictive quality that a lot of that prog had. But 
that was really what I got out of it. And the same, and that was also true of the games I was playing. Like, I think I told the story on the pod before about listening to tons of Wishbone Ash while playing Dark Edge of Camelot and, you know, living in MMOs and, and absorb like closely associating music with, with MMOs and also closely associating music with the first fiction I ever wrote as well. Like, it's all one thing to me. Uh, and then as I got older, music taste diverged um, multiple times in all the different directions and became part of my normal life. But my taste in games doesn't change that much. I still like to be kind of transported somewhere and to kind of live in in, in a different space. And so, um, and for the most part, that would only have really been expressed by the soundtracks for the games themselves. Um, and until very recently, when I started to revisit um, prog, particularly, and um, all the different forms of sort of folk yeah the sort of overlap between folk and prog and metal because i think i kind of moved away from metal out of some embarrassment in my 20s um not not justified at all and that's not that's not a slight on metal that is a slight on being 22 um (laughs) and now i'm kind of rediscovering it which is kind of also marks the arc of my life in a bunch of other ways including warhammer (laughs) and other things that i thought i would never touch again when i was 22 because i was cool now um (laughs) that age 32 I have very much <laughs> re-embraced. Um, right back have, into it. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Um, get me down that the the disposable income slalom of uh, <laughs> a, a man with no children in his thirties. Um, the um, but yeah, and so uh, I think you know the kind of genre that best represents my favorite games is going to be sort of operatic. Um, metal a lot of the time or provoke or kind of um i guess uh uh moody electronica and uh, uh, moody electronica informs most of the things i've ever written for games uh one way or another um apart from my most recent stuff which where it wouldn't be appropriate um but my musical taste otherwise like well i was thinking about this like there is no game that is reflected by that reflect the work of Janelle Monet, but there fucking should be. <laughs> I would play, like, yeah, I want to play that game. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this. The depth of my answer to this is I like indie music and I like indie games. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Nice. Um, I got into Prague because uh, there is a an episode of Futurama where Fry needs to use his space invaders skills in order to defeat actual space invaders. Mm. And in order to practice, he uh, gets like a six pack of Pepsi and an all rush mixtape and goes and plays space invaders while listening to rush. And I was like, huh, Who's this band? <laughs> and so <laughs> went, went and listened to them and liked it and uh, explored Prague for a while. But that—that that is my only answer to this question. Excellent. What is I the? Think, I think. Like, yeah. What game goes with jazz? Like improvised jazz. Improvised jazz. Because I was going to say, didn't you make a game with jazz? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I'm assuming there's a separation between games games that have a certain kind of music as the soundtrack and games that sort of match yeah, that music right. in some thematic way and i don't feel like gunpoint is a very jazzy game in terms of um mm. uh i mean hopefully people are, are improvising a little bit but it's not like make up your own wacky thing as you go it's uh, much more like here's a puzzle yeah. and solve it yeah 
Make up your own wacky interpretation of what this light switch should do. I guess it's um, Ape Out. Have you guys played Ape Out? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Where you're creating the kind of jazzy soundtrack by uh, smashing humans to pieces and cymbal crashes and stuff like that aligned with the smashes and the the drumming matches the rhythm of your pounding across the floor and... That game yeah, is kind of like cheating. Uh, that game is kind of cheating on this question because I can't possibly claim that the music doesn't match the the game because the game <laughs> literally creates the music. Our <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, next question comes from Daniel, who writes: Creighton friends, the hype and attention around Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven has made me hate it a little bit because I'm not particularly interested in it, but can't avoid seeing information about it. Do you ever feel this way about overhyped properties that you aren't interested in? Is it better or worse for you since you are somewhat inside the machine? Daniel. Uh, I do get anxious when everyone is is in love with a game that that I'm not. I guess this isn't about unreleased games so much because I never, you know, the jury's still out. But um, uh, The Witcher 3 is, I like it, <laughs> but I, I don't love it and everyone loves it and it makes me worried because it makes me wonder like uh, like I can't afford to be too far out of touch with people's tastes because ultimately I'm going to be making things that I hope they like and my really my only barometer for it is that I like it um, and I need that connection to still exist for my career to work <laughs> so anytime <laughs> I'm like drifting too far from public opinion I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about it but actually the truth is that um, uh, one of the cool things about um, gaming uh, these days in particular is that we've discovered there's a billion communities of that all have millions of people in them and you can absolutely uh, have a career just serving, you know, as long as there's like a million people out there who like the same kinds of things I like, it's viable for me to reach enough of a percentage of that group that I don't have to give a shit what anyone else thinks. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that hate is too strong a word, particularly for for unreleased games, because I tend to enjoy hype and enjoy the marketing. Something like a lot of the time, I don't care what the game is like, but I would just enjoy other people's excitement for it or enjoy the trailers or whatever else. And so I tend to feel that way about Cyberpunk or other things like it. I definitely have the thing of just a kind of recommendation resentment where. Mm. I don't I don't feel it on the surface, but I know that the more something is recommended to me, the less likely I am <laughs> to uh, go yeah. experience it myself. Like there's probably some sort of curve you could map out where I briefly increases my chance of checking it out and then rapidly decreases after like a <laughs> right. second recommendation. Uh and so like at this point the wire just never stands a chance of me watching it because <laughs> I've just it's been recommended so many times. I think I'm more like professionally and kind of academically interested in the hype that grows up around something rather than like excited for it myself. I find myself like I don't get hyped for for forthcoming games very easily at all. Like it's it's pretty rare that something kind of gets stuck in my. I remember very much what that felt like. I remember very much desperately looking forward to a particular game coming out because of the way it sounded from previews and things. So I I can very much sympathise with that. Um, but it's not something I experience myself much anymore. Like, I'm really looking forward to Bloodscape 3, for example, but I'm not like, I don't have that kind of desperate need to know more about it. Maybe that's just growing out of it, but um, but I do find myself more just sort of interested in the in the, the way hype manifests and the way it changes over time and things. Like, it's been interesting this last week watching 
far more substantial gameplay impressions and footage of Cyberpunk come out. I'm watching some of it myself and kind of noting that the game looks beautiful. Some of the animation's amazing. Combat looks pretty ropey. Driving looks pretty ropey. Obviously, it's got another five, four or five months in the oven, so who knows. Um, but also just very carefully watching like the way the community changes around the 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 revelation of the reality of the thing. I find that very interesting. Um, I find it very interesting how content creators uh, adapt their messages and their approach, um, you know, to get the most value out of hype. That stuff is all super professionally relevant, but also kind of cool uh, as in terms of watching games, pre-release games become commodities that can make or, or not make or break, but offer a potential fortune to the creator that gets it right and most hits the, the tone of the community who wants that information. That's all kind of interesting stuff to me, but I don't think I have an emotional relationship with it beyond that. Next question comes from Mr. Wendell, who writes, what's the game you've enjoyed the most, but played the least? Or maybe vice versa, if you're feeling spicy. <laughs> uh, for, for, for me, it's probably Factorio and other games like Factorio. Because uh, mm. I... Uh, I think I played Factorio mm. for six hours in a single sitting and then uninstalled it afterwards because I, I, I those games are time sinks. They are extremely compelling and Moorish to me where one task leads naturally into the next and you are constantly striving towards some unattainable, un- unattainable efficiency perfection um but the fact that they are time sinks and i don't feel like they are enriching my life or even like after the fact i don't have a sense of what enjoyment i just had (laughs) playing it uh and i just i don't want to use my leisure time in that way anymore broadly Mm. Unless it's social in some way, unless I can do it with other people, and then it's okay. Hmm. Uh, it probably isn't the most extreme example, but um, a recent one was uh, heartbreakingly was uh, XCOM Chimera Squad because I was so excited about that game and it was so much what I wanted at first, and then it just—I don't know—I almost wonder if something broke on my on my playthrough because I played fifty-six hours of it and I still haven't finished it, and. Uh, other people were talking about it, like, you know, obviously an XCOM campaign is, is at least that long, probably a hundred hours. Um, but this was a more, much narrower focus game. And in particular, you only get a certain number of squad mates and then it just stops giving you them. And once it stops giving you them, the game, there's really nothing new to discover you get a couple of new abilities for those people, but once they're maxed out, that's it. There's nothing, every mission is basically the same after that. And that period has gone on for so long. And I was just, I stuck with it because because this is so in my genre and it's so uh, has so much in common with the game I'm making, and I really felt like I needed to see it through. And I have now got to the last mission, but then the last mission turned out to be the penultimate mission, and then the last mission for real turns out to have two stages to it, but then when the two stages are up, it starts another three stages of it, and I just stopped. I just thought, oh, I just can't see it through. I've just played so much of this, and it's just the same constantly. I can't get through it. So that's kind of a... Uh, a sad thing hmm. i think i often uh when it comes to like i have i can't really well i think of one particular game from recently but like i have such a bad habit of finding games that i love and talking about them on the podcast and then never playing them again that 
like uh, I really struggle to go back to things actually once the sort of the hot take has come up. Um, <laughs> partly because that's one of the reasons that drives me to seek out new games rather than play Destiny all day. Um, <laughs> and um, and the most recent example of this in terms of the like struggling to go back to something that I do absolutely love was World of Horror. I really, really do want to go back to that. And I kind of, I can determine this by, I put things on my Steam favorites list and highlight them in order to force myself to remember, like, you like this, go explore this more. Um, but I do have this problem of just sort of dipping into something. Maybe in that case, kind of finishing a few of the storylines. Uh, I really struggle to do the thing of like mining out every last drop of kind of value from a game, which is what I used to do a lot with games that I loved, particularly like RPGs and things. I just haven't done that for such a long time. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on the opposite row round of this question? Games that you've enjoyed the least and played the most? <laughs> there are. I don't. I don't know if it quite fits the question, but there are. I was thinking about it recently because the Mafia remake is on the way. I think in August, mm. and I loved the original Mafia, and for years would list it as like one of my top ten games. It's it's cinematic it's surprisingly well acted and written for its time it was an open world game before slightly before gta 3 i think um fully in 3d but it had more integrity as a as a real world and a sense of place to it um but i think for the duration of the time that i was actually playing it most of that time was spent extremely frustrated and angry <laughs> slamming my mouse and yelling at it uh, <laughs> and like it's infamous in particular for the there's a race mission you have oh, to complete God. this like mission this, you have to, have to win it and they eventually patched it and made it a bit easier but i didn't have the patch and i did it before and that took probably like 10 hours but even around that like the combat isn't great. Like it's it's you know what was it two thousand two or something like that. It was pretty mm-hmm. early third person action game. No real cover system. Ropey AI. Really shaky third person aiming with guns. Um, missions where you just had to mow down so so many people in a in a combat system that didn't really feel like it supported it. Then lots of like scripted sequences where you'd be like shooting turrets from the backs of trucks, and there was lots of fail states and all this sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, I loved it. I loved it in retrospect, <laughs> even though mm. I was so angry with it so much of the time I was playing it. Um, I don't know if that quite fits the question. Yeah, and I think it's interesting like approach this because like it's sort of what the game represents and the kind of fantasy it represents right like rather than just the literal experience moment to moment of playing it i think particularly at that time i remember loving mafia because it felt like such a place again to return to the thing like i wanted to be there and i remember all the same frustrations like but i think also that was a different era where like frustrations like that racing level felt like the cost of entry to something like that i don't think we necessarily accept that anymore that I'm going to try and play this game and it's just going to fucking fight me. Like (laughs) it doesn't want, like it doesn't want me to progress or see the ending and I shouldn't expect to. (laughs) Yeah. That thing of um, a game where you, the moment to moment of while you're playing it, you're spending a lot of time frustrated, but then in retrospect, it kind of glows. That definitely applies to mirror's edge for me. Um, Mm. And that's 
that's not a game i wouldn't say that's a, one of the games i enjoyed the least or anything i i did love it um but about 50% of my time i was <laughs> yeah slamming my mouth like, oh for fuck's sake come on i made that but it was just like it's just so the game is so special like there's just nothing else looks like it or feels like it even mirror's edge 2 doesn't really look like it or feel like it to me um mm. just its aesthetic was so just enchanting and i just wanted to live in that world and and feel like i was there mm. Our last question uh, comes from Matt, who writes, Dear CNC Dream Factory, I've recently found myself idly daydreaming about how much I would like to see a Rockstar-made open-world sci-fi game. Not only would it be great to see their uh, huge resources turned towards making a detailed sci-fi world, I feel like a future city with spaceships coming and going, bizarre alien inhabitants, and weird future tech would be a much more believable canvas on which to add the more gamey elements which really break the immersion in the real worlds, quote-unquote, of, of GTA and Red Dead, uh, particularly that in online incarnations my question then is this what is your dream triple a no expense spared money no object game and do you think it ever could or will get made all the best and thank you as ever for the wonderful podcast matt for me it would be to see a star trek game made the mm. same the same budget as maybe any of the star wars games that have come out more recently or or a rockstar game because uh, like I love Star Trek. I've loved it since I was a kid. I've watched every episode of every series pretty much. And like one of the most exciting things ever was there was an Elite Force expansion where you mm. could walk around Voyager, I think it was. Yeah. And just yeah, go was... like freely around the ship and go visit Seven of Nine in in the the teleporter bay or whatever and all this sort of stuff. And just the fantasy of exploring those ships. And then the fantasy of exploring a galaxy that galaxy in particular which has a, a, a it's a flavor of sci-fi that you don't really see in games very often mm. um i'd love that and whether it would ever actually happen probably not because for like star trek feels like a very big and central and mainstream part of pop culture to me mm. uh, until I go look at like how much money say any of the Star Trek films have ever made versus <laughs> any of the Star Wars films for example mm. and it's just not anywhere close like the vast majority of Star Trek movies do not make that much money um, so whether you could ever justify that kind of budget on it I don't know Graham am I right in remembering that you haven't played Mass Effect? <laughs> I well, I thought about that because like Mass Effect often gets compared to it, and I've played the first three hours of Mass Effect One three times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, think, I guess that is the, the weakest part of the entire series. <laughs> <laughs> I think I get about as far as the big space station shopping center place and run around there for a bit. <laughs> the Citadel shopping center. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, and then never just never go back. Uh, big town syndrome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, classic big town. Lost in the big Primark in the sky. <laughs> not having died. That's, that sounds like you've died and gone to buy socks. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, yeah, because that is very much the. I, I think I would. I I'm gonna say the same thing. I, I would. I would really love that level of sort of investment in detail in the Star Trek game. I think. I think it'd be really hard for a game to ever capture all the things that make Star Trek kind of special. Like, how the hell do you handle the holodeck? Like, 
I was, I was thinking, I was, I was thinking about this because like they revealed the brain dancing thing for cyberpunk. And like, I think the idea that, well, one thing, the idea that Star Trek wouldn't necessarily justify a triple A budget because nobody, because the movies don't do as well as other kind of sci-fi licenses. I think the counterpoint to that is to look at something like cyberpunk, which was, yeah, it's, it's important to the genre, but it's cyberpunk. The tabletop game is niche. Um, by anyone's standards and certainly not like this massive pop culture cornerstone that Star Trek undoubtedly is and it's managed to generate hype around it and I think benefited not and obviously CD Projekt helped that but like it's also the fact that um people like the idea of liking it I think it's sort of it's retro and kind of interesting and I think Cyberpunk could uh sorry Star Trek could could harness the same thing but like how do they how do you do the holodeck because like you know, if you're going to live the fantasy of being on the ship, then they have to have one, pretty much, unless it's original series, I guess. And like in Cyberpunk, they've taken brain dancing, which is the kind of the equivalent, the kind of VR, you know, go into the web, have um, relive experiences thing, and it appears to be Cyberpunk 2077's detective mode. Like you can't really do that with Star Trek unless it literally is detective mode. I.e., you press a button and now you're Sherlock Holmes. Like that would be the only way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> just, puts up, just puts up another game from your Steam Library. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it just replaces some textures at random with data. Like, as in, <laughs> and Spiner is, you know, Mad Max in the Mad Max game. Spelunky or, guy. <laughs> yeah, Spelunky guy. Oh, man. That, shit. Oh, man. I want to see that now. <laughs> Somebody do that as cosplay somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, the thing with cyberpunk, though, is that I don't think people are, they're not excited about uh, cyberpunk 2077 because of the board game. They're excited about it because it's CD Projekt Red. They're excited about it True. because it's the genre of cyberpunk. I think the problem with Star Trek is people have preconceived notions of what Star Trek is. And so if CD Projekt Red came along and said, we're going to make a Star Trek game, there are a bunch of people that would be excited about that, but a bunch of people that would also go, oh. I don't like Star Trek that much. It's like Star Wars, but boring. Mm. Uh, and so I feel like that's that's the kind of cap on it. Because I always remember like, you know, THQ went bust or something like that. And when all the different IP they had were being bought up, Red Faction was bought for like $2 million. Evolve was bought for like $16 million. And like the fact that Evolve was an unknown quantity worked in its favor versus Red Faction, which there already been three games of that and they mm. haven't been that successful. Right. Yeah, and I suppose Cyberpunk did have the benefit that hadn't been an unsuccessful Cyberpunk game. Which is, yeah, interesting. I like that what AAA thing do you want? Star Trek. That's the only answer. Star Trek. <laughs> yep. We'll just focus on that. I think um, Star Trek would be, for me, the two things that jump out as being difficult to gamify. Uh, one is combat, because most games just have combat as their staple, and you're, you're going to kill hundreds of enemies, and that's very un-Star Trek. That's the problem Elite Force had, is, is like, it was Star Trek, but you're wearing like body armor, and you had like a phaser shotgun, and you're just mowing down mm. wave after wave of like bugs that just splattered, which is extremely un-Star Trek. Like, there is combat in Star Trek, but it's always... Um, it's a much more thoughtful approach where combat's a last resort. And if there is combat, it's brief that, you know, there'll be a, a quick fight. Mm. And victory is almost never through combat. It's always 
uh, the way they solve a problem is never just like, well, we just had better phases and we shot better, and so we won. <laughs> it's always like, <laughs> shit, we can't. We, it's, in fact, almost always the combat is to demonstrate they can't win through combat. Like the first thing that happens is Worf gets thrown across the room, right, to show that well, you're the best warrior. I can bat them into the wall, and uh, therefore combat isn't going to work here. And so then you have to talk your way out of it and and do lateral thinking and stuff. And I think um, uh, that's why I thought of Mass Effect is that that although it doesn't go far enough for a Star Trek game. Um, it does have high stakes conversations where you try and talk someone out of some drastic action and you can sometimes win with words. Um, and I think a Star Trek game would have to do that. And then I don't mm. know what, I don't know whether they just don't have very much combat at all or whether they replace it with something else or I guess ship to ship combat is fine, which is what Star Trek online kind of does a lot of. And I think yeah. it does fairly well as I remember. Yeah. I think that's the thing that you end up in sort of visual novel territory because it's not like it's not really Star Trek as well. If you're having like a big budget spectacular adventure every week, like <laughs> sometimes there just needs to be a new person on the ship who's beamed on, or you need to take them somewhere, and they're just making everyone a bit uncomfortable. Like it's not <laughs> like a huge crisis or anything. It's just this this one guy is weird, and it's making <laughs> Troy uncomfortable. And so, and what you'll learn by the end of it is some people in space are weird. Um, Moving the on. last, yeah. the last Deep Space Nine episode I watched, uh, the plot was that Dax could play the keyboard, but she couldn't remember why. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, I want to play like the either the Star Trek scenario generator or a game like a puzzle game where your job is to articulate a scenario that the Star Trek crew, who are like AI controlled, can't handle. <laughs> <laughs> like. Like arrange the plot almost like in a meta sense, like arrange the plot elements in a way that breaks the formula. That'd be fun, but then you're into turning the process of a procedural thing into a, the actual game, I suppose. But yeah, <laughs> like you know, if you set the wharf throw velocity too high and he dies, then that just sort of changes <laughs> the entire nature of the episode. But then it would inevitably become about resurrecting. Wharf due to some moss you've found or something. You know what I mean? Like the like they will find a fucking way. Like and so having to unpick that, like construct the scenario they can't undo by the end it's of you, the you're definitely making the Star Trek Voyager game at that point rather than yeah. the Star Trek next generation game. That's true, yeah, that is true. Well that is all of the questions we've got time for. Thank you to everybody who wrote us a question. If you would like to send a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at questions at crateandcrowbar.com. You can also tweet, tweet us, tweet us if you wish, at Twitter, Crate and Crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> Crate and Crowbar on Twitter. Um, we have a YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar, where you can find uploads of these episodes with pictures and some other things. Why not? Uh, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast on Patreon. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about supporting the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash great and crowbar. Uh, finally, uh, our community hangs out on Discord, and you can find a link for our Discord channel on our website at createandcrowbar.com. Uh, I've been Chris Thurston. That's and it. I've been Tom Francis. <laughs> <laughs> I assume. <laughs> And I have been Graham Smith. <laughs> Thanks what? for listening, everybody. Good attempt. <laughs> <laughs> An attempt is made.